Welcome to Practically Ranching. I'm your host, Matt Perry. Each episode, we'll deliver a mixed ration of tradition, business, philosophy, and the emotions evoked when these principles collide. We won't try to make you the world's smartest rancher. That's not our goal. But each week, we will hold a discussion that will stimulate critical thought, broaden our perspective, and help determine practical solutions for the challenges facing ranchers today. And in the process, we may even offer some worthwhile wisdom while we are practically ranching. Well, thanks for joining us for episode two of Practically Ranching. I must admit this one feels even more legit because I finally get to have my first guest on Practically Ranching, Daryl Stevenson, who uh, currently lives in White Sulphur Springs, Montana, originally from the Judith Basin area south of Hobson. Uh, I've known Daryl and his family for, goodness, most of my life, honestly. Uh, His dad, Keith, and my father, Tom, were both on the American Angus Association Board of Directors together in the late 80s and early 90s and got to know the Stevenson's family very well and went up there to their place several times uh, throughout the last few decades. And I think a lot of of that family's history and and knowledge of the Angus breed and their willingness to uh, look at it from a little different perspective, take take some risks from a business standpoint and, and grow that operation in a lot of different ways. And one of those risks, uh, one of those opportunities for growth that we're going to talk about today was Daryl's foray into international Angus seed stock uh, production, really over in Russia. And we'll hear a little bit from Daryl about his investment there and his work in Stevenson Sputnik that he um, that he worked into with a couple of partners over there, and and probably spent even a little more time with the knowledge of the culture and and surroundings that he gained while he was over there on the ground with Stevenson Sputnik and and how that relates to the war in Ukraine now and uh, some some perspectives that he has on that. So again, I appreciate you joining us and look forward to visiting with Daryl Stevenson. We appreciate you being here today and I know You've had a, a busy week up there during calving and everything else, so it means a bunch to me that you spent some time with us here. Just real quick for the folks that are listening, give us a brief history about the Stevenson family in Montana and how you came to be, and then we'll move across the pond and head to Russia. Sure. Glad to. Um, glad to have the opportunity to visit with you today. So first of all, my name is Daryl Stevenson. I'm the product of a multi-generational ranching family. My great-grandparents settled in central Montana actually before there was a town or a railroad. And they kind of cobbled together what they could for uh, making a living as you did in those days. And then my grandparents actually were able to put some ground together and started in the, the first land, I think was in the early thirties. And then by the late forties, they had set their sights on uh, registered Angus cattle. And then since that point in time throughout history and uh, a growing family and growing land base. There's actually several different entities that descend from that today. So our first annual production bull sale was in 1961, and that would actually be revered as the longest established annual bull sale in America. Today, we have a fall sale production setting and then a spring sale in the spring of the year as well. So I think your intent of the conversation today is talk about more so my experience overseas. And there needs to be a a little bit of background on why this even probably came about. I was raised in an environment that dealing with or in terms of business or communicating that that wasn't uncommon. I mean, for as long as I can remember throughout my entire life, actually, we always had foreign interest and and 
I think the first imported or exported projects that we had were in the, the 60s, actually, and that was simply with Canada, and then that progressed to Mexico. First live animals to Argentina would have been in the late 70s, and then by the time we got into the 80s, we were dealing more with uh, South America, which evolved then to more Austria-Asia interest with Australia, New Zealand, eventually South Africa, and you know, you grow up around that environment and, and you meet people from different cultures and, and different environments. And my mind was rather open to these opportunities. So as, as I matured and in my working adult life, it didn't seem that foreign to me to actually work with people in a different culture on a different continent. So I know that it sounds crazy making to a lot of people, but it really wasn't that uncommon to me. Yeah, doesn't doesn't surprise me a bit either. Even though I I still had uh, during the headlights look when I when I heard your news uh, back a few years ago. But I I remember as a kid, of course, your dad and my father served on the American Angus Association board of directors for several years, and we'd been out to Hobson a couple times to see you and the family. And and the if I had to describe the Stevenson family in one word, okay, two words, it was risk takers. And from the time that your grandpa Jamie and, and his ancestors even were pushing out toward the frontier, you all just kept pushing. And I think that that's pretty cool and that's pretty interesting. And, and I think that it fits, just as you said, that you pushed that frontier this time even outside of the North American content, a continent and uh, over to Russia. So tell us, tell us why. Tell us what led you to Russia and give us a, a quick timeline of that as well. So everything always comes home. I mean, it, it comes home to the headquarter ranch and the reasons why you've got to understand that foundation. I mentioned a few countries where we saw emerging interest in the, in the seventies, eighties and nineties. And, and that reason was to, they were sourcing seed stock. They, they wanted to upgrade. They wanted to improve where their, personal investments were national cow herd size. And uh, we had our first, my father actually collaborated in a partnership in, in Argentina in the nineties. And there was investment in that and, and it worked well for both sides. It wasn't a long lasting partnership, but I was exposed to that at a rather young age. My father-in-law in the eighties, had actually a partnership in Japan. And, and that's actually where I met my wife. We were both teenagers and we were exporting heifers to Japan over a two-year period of time. And he, my, this is my father-in-law, was back and forth quite a bit. And I mean, I'll refer back that it, it seems yet again crazy that you would take the risk of, of dealing in different currencies or different time zones. But I've also had uh, good luck in the fact that we've always dealt with good people. There's an immense amount of risk involved with any of these projects, but you've got to know how to navigate and protect yourself properly. So when I was actually approached to visit Russia for the first time, it was actually a state sponsored federally and the state of Montana. It was a trade mission. Now, what a lot of people really aren't aware of is that every state in the union has a department of agriculture and most of those state department of agriculture's have a marketing officer and there are there is available funding for these trade missions and it would be sourced in in this particular instance through USLGE, which is United States Livestock Genetic Export Program. There is available MAP funding, market access programs that is funded through FAS, the Foreign Ag Service, which then goes back to the USDA. This is taxpayer dollars that are designated to actually create, stimulate interest in our ag products. And it could be pulse crops, small grains, live cattle, maybe frozen genetics, if it's under the agricultural arena, it is available. Now, when I say that it's available, they don't hand you the money and they don't pay for your plane ticket. What they do, however, is assist in coordinating 
and exposing you to these marketplaces. I mean, there's direct communication with with the the embassy for the country that you're working with and the ag attaches that that would do the organizing for you, providing probably translation services as well. And I had actually, in Montana, we're quite fortunate that we've always had for 30 years, pretty aggressive marketing officers. And I had had the opportunity uh, once before to be involved on a trade mission to, it was actually to Palermo in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And, And so that was my first exposure, which would have been in the 90s, actually. I can't say a lot really came out of that because I would have considered that a more established marketplace. Certainly made some relationships, built a network. There was some frozen semen and some embryos traded, but we'd kind of gone beyond a point that their need for live cattle genetics was surpassed by the simplicity and cost of frozen genetics. And so in 19, in in 2000, got to get my year straight, in 2007, I was invited on a, a trade delegation to attend the Golden Autumn trade show in Moscow, Russia. And what that was represented to me, it was the largest egg exhibition in the entire country. I, I, in order to reference it, I mean, it would be like our Denver Stock Show, for instance, the National Western, or possibly further down south, uh, the Houston Stock Show. I mean, th- this was their big, big event. And uh, there were, initially, there was supposed to be 10 or 12 producers attend this, plus some Department of Ag staff, some ag media, and it, it just kept kind of melting away, and there was less and less people interested And I will actually never forget that I thought about stepping away and not going. I'm I'm busy. We're all busy. And my dad actually said to me, well, you've bought the plane ticket. You've allotted the time. I think it's uh, probably a good idea just to go check it out. And my reasoning was, is that it was a it, it wasn't a marketplace. It wasn't established. Why, why would we go into an area, a region of the world that is just not even functioning compared to the, the beef economies that, that we normally would deal with? And so on that first trade mission, uh, there was only two producers, myself and Jack Holden from Holden Herb, along with the Secretary of Agriculture from the state of Montana, our marketing officer, and then one ag media person in Russell Nemitz, who is now Western Ag Network. So it was quite an eye-opening experience. Yeah, it uh, sure sounds like it. And, and I remember all kinds of these trade delegations, as you talked about, going to Palermo or Mexico or wherever the case may be. And, and they were usually very educational. They were very eye-opening. I hear stories. I never got to go on one myself, but I hear stories but they were a lot of fun and they uh, introduced you to a new culture. But this is probably one of the first times, your, your case, that you're going to tell us about that, that something pretty substantial actually came about. So after that 07 trade delegation, you decided to go, you came back, and then what? Yeah, you're exactly right. These trade missions aren't uncommon. Uh, You name some of the primary targets where there's a lot of Americans that have been able to travel to. But once again, you're dealing with established marketplaces. It's it's great to be able to network and and learn. But in terms of establishing uh, true market trade, the world's a lot smaller place today. So I will I will admit that it was a lot about timing and and so on that first trip, I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. I, I had no no previous knowledge or understanding of the country as a whole in Russia. I had no foundation for the language barrier. I, I like most Americans, grew up on the end of the Cold War era, and that was about I was pretty limited on what we were actually getting into. So I had had the opportunity to travel quite a bit into foreign cultures, but this was truly foreign, incredibly intimidating. I'll, I'll be honest. And 
they welcomed us with open arms. This is 2007. And, and I mean, if you had an American flag as an emblem, as a, as a pin on your suit jacket or wherever, it, you were opened with welcome arms. And we will discuss a lot of the reasons for this in, in the next few minutes, actually, that they were open for business and they wanted help and, and they needed to know how to get there. And, and it wasn't just Americans. At this trade show, it was an absolute multicultural event. There, there was five or six of us from the United States, and, if, and there would have been 100 from Australia. There would have been 20 from Canada. There was, there was ag representation from Brazil, from Argentina, from Ireland, Great Britain, Romania, Hungary, I mean, every beef producing country in the world had representation and we were truly on the minor side. And so they wanted to expose to us what they had in production, but understand they had no established beef producing. I mean, it just wasn't, there was nothing established. Their idea of beef production was a dual production cow, mostly milking Semmental where they they milked them as long as they could. And then the residual harvest was their meat. That, that was their meat production. And, and so we toured two or three different dairies. We met with a lot of dignitaries, potential investors. And when I say trade show, now understand, this is as good as it gets for the largest country in the world. And finally, we got to the exhibition center, and it wasn't until the second day that we had actually run across some livestock. And I guarantee that in your county fair, like my county fair, there would have been way more livestock in our county fairs, and the quality would far exceed anything that was on display there. And, and when I mean representing the entire country, there wouldn't have been 20 total cattle on display that would have represented about five different breeds of cattle. There wouldn't have been 30 hogs, about that many sheep, and they were all jammed into a corner in, in a Quonset, in a chilly, unheated venue that, that was, it was just, it was jaw-dropping that this was the representation of all of their meat production in the country. Whereas on the other side of it, anything from their, their wheat production or their honey production or their dairy production, I mean, it was front and center and a glamorous venue. It was, it was huge. But in, in witnessing that, it was the first taste that it, it wasn't there, it wasn't available. And I, I can't even begin to exaggerate on how much interest there was in live cattle. And, and the questions range from what breed of cattle to how many do we need? Can we harvest them as soon as they get here? There was zero base understanding on building a meat production system at that point. And so I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole and get caught on a tangent on these little details in such a short amount of time. But the fact is, we came home from that trip with a stack of business cards that that was unreal. You're, you're terribly tired, you're incredibly jet lagged and you get home and neither Jack nor I or anybody could actually believe on what we had just witnessed. And so it was just with simple due diligence on follow-up. And at that point, you gotta remember in 2007, that, I mean, the internet had obviously been established but it wasn't available everywhere. And on that trip, we couldn't have found it over there if we wanted. And, and then by our second, third, or fourth trip, you could actually rent 30 minutes of Wi-Fi in a hotel. There was no such thing as smartphones then. And so simple communication literally began with a few faxes, which then evolved pretty quickly into emails and follow-up emails, which then followed into return trade delegations here and then back over there and 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 then it started getting crazy by 2008 2009 so without getting into too much detail give us a and we, we may have to have you back on here sometime so we can get to the russian ukraine war here and yet still have ample time to tell us what you did in terms of a business model sure. over there but without getting too deep into what happened next what came about and how long did that take you to build what you had 
in your Angus ranch there in Russia. And then maybe we'll talk a little about what has happened from then until now. Perfect. That just gives me an easy out. I've got to shorten this up because it could drag on for a couple of hours. Remember, I've known you for a while, so we're both guilty. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I, I hope that your listeners do appreciate how long we have actually known each other. You were. Let's not go there. Yeah, Let's it's not been go a long there. time. Yeah, so, neither of us want those stories. The long story short, by 2009, I had created two very good friends that ended up being my Russian partners. In early January of 2010, they actually had approached me. I'll never forget this. And there's so many short stories that I should or probably could write, but I was calving in the depths of winter in Montana and it was frigid cold, minus 20. And I had my chinks and covered in afterbirth and crap and my phone rings. And it was a man by the name of Sergei Goncharov. And, and I mean, he never calls. He could speak English face to face, but he was terribly uncomfortable on the phone. And he says, Duddle. I said, yeah, Sergey, good to hear from you. Duddle, you need to come to Russia. And I said, well, I'm a little busy right now. I got, uh, got a few cows. Spring bull sale is in March. Can't go then. We got AI season, da-da-da-da-da. I said, you know, I could probably free up by June or July because if you make a trip, it's 10 time zones. You've got to cross off at least a week on your on your calendar. This isn't a short overnight deal. And he says, yeah, that's not to go into the work. And I said, when, when do you want me to come over there? He says, you need to come tomorrow. I said, what would this is impossible? And and he got Obs- flustered. Obson International. Yeah. And he got flustered and he couldn't say it. He says, you, you call Kate, you call Katya. And this is a new young vet that I'd actually met. And so I did track her down and she said, I don't, I really don't know what's going on. He's all excited about the politics in this region. And he's, he wants to offer you an opportunity. So I did push the issue. And I had a passport, obviously, but I didn't have a current visa. Expedited that. And about five days later, I was on a plane to Moscow. And I land at Shedimativo, which is their largest international airport. And in order to fly domestically, you've got to cross the city, which is about a two-hour drive because of the traffic congestion. And remember, this is no sleep from night calving. And this is, you're, you're already starting to get jet lagged. And so they, they bought a room for me and I go upstairs and I shower and come back down and I'll just be transparent that there was a bottle of scotch sitting there on the table. And we had about two hours before our flight. And they said, this is the deal. We want you to be our equal partner, your knowledge, expertise, your guidance, your sourcing of cattle. We are actually going to pick out where this is going to happen. And I'm, I'm pretty dazed. I'm jet lagged. Um, we fly in the dark. We land in the dark. We look at three different, four different parcels of ground. And by the next night, I'm picking out a 13,500 acre ranch. This all progresses into initial shipments that took place the fall of 2010. Now understand this is an old collective farm. It's roughly 13,500 acres. It was a barren landscape. There was no buildings, there was no fences, there was no developed water. And actually when the first cattle arrived, you and I would call this a feedlot setting where that they could actually contain them, feed them. And beyond that, there, there wasn't a fence line. And, and I know this sounds exaggerated, but to tell you or the people that are actually listening, our big joke that first winter is as the cows calved in two feet of snow is, well, boys, you better get a stop because you could go from Poland to China and there's not a fence line. And you've got to understand that this is the largest country landmass in the world. And so let me see where you're sitting at right now that would be, I believe, eight time zones to Moscow. I'm, I'm, it depends on, I think I'm nine time zones right now today from essentially Bozeman and Moscow. That's a long ways away, isn't it? I mean, you think about that. Well, I also Incredible. want you to realize that from Moscow to the east coast of Russia is 10 time zones. From Moscow to Vladivostok, their major east coast port is eight time zones. That country is that big and it's wow. not developed as, as you and I or any normal American 
would think is developed in the sense that you drive down the highway and if it can be grazed, it's fenced. If it can be farmed, it's farmed. That's not the case. This is a tremendous land uh, land base and natural resources is is unlike anywhere else in the world. And so the idea behind this, which my partners had presented to me, is they needed to establish uh, a core nucleus herd of breeding stock, which would then grow into a commercial production production herd that that would then help service not only the region of Varanish, but then it would eventually grow on to the rest of Russia to fulfill what they need. Because the one statistic that you need to understand is upon our first trip in 2007, in the embassy in Moscow, the, the head USDA attache said that they were importing about 70% of their meat product at that time. The majority of that was actually coming from Brazil. And this is the largest land-based country in the world. And it's rather ridiculous when they've got to rely on imports. I mean, this was a food security issue that, that was, it was in a doctrine that came right out of the Kremlin, stimulated by Putin himself, that they needed to ensure their own survivability through food security. And so this was politically driven. It was very incentivized with subsidies along the way. And that's how I actually got my start. One point you might wonder, your listeners might wonder, as a foreigner, you just can't come into the country and own land. You can own land by, by in two forms. The first is that you could actually marry a Russian and then have the ability to own land. I passed that by my wife and she didn't think that was a very good idea. Surely so, not. <laughs> remember, you know, Sarah, she is the alpha mare on this outfit. Remember that. The second option, you could be part of a corporation. And so that's what we did for them. It was essentially the same thing that we would call an LLC. They very uh, slightly, the federal government supersedes all of uh, their states are called oblasts. There's, I believe, 82 oblasts in the country. And this is where a lot of people thought my risk was really coming into play, but it, it proved through, through our effort on procuring that initial ground, it, it was an immense amount of effort in their actions of protecting the, the deeded rights of, of who we were actually buying that from. And I, I gained as difficult and as, as much of a challenge as that was, I actually gained a lot of respect for that protectionism that they did give to those landholders. And you could do one of two things. You could lease the ground uh, for 49 years. I still, to this point, can't tell you why the magic number 49, or you could outright buy it. But you've also got to understand, it's a little hard to price ground that has no relative comparable value with anything else. No, none of this ground ever sells. So there's there's just a lot of complications that went with it. It was a monumental challenge, but we did get that done. In the year of 2010, 2011, our first shipment, just over 1,400 head went on one small boat, which should have actually never done a transatlantic journey. And then six, seven, 47 planes that we flew out of actually Chicago O'Hare. And when they landed, I will repeat, there wasn't a fence. There wasn't uh, developed roadways. There was one well that we had drilled to prepare. Feed base wasn't established. There was no working facility. And my first winter, it snowed a foot and then two feet and then three feet and then four feet. And it just got worse and worse. It was just an un unbelievable effort to get through that first and then second year. But over time, it became it, it surpassed surviving to operating and the long story as short as i can make it matt to get to where you want to be on this conversation from 2010 to 2017 over an eight-year period we did grow that to four different units which encompassed about 60,000 acres we calved the first cattle arrived in december of 2010 by the spring of 2017 we were calving about 7,500 cows. Nothing was harvested at a young age, so there would have been another three to 4,000 head of yearlings. We had also built a growing yard, fattening yard, a small-scale abattoir, and separate from my investment, but my 
partners had actually started uh, two different restaurants to actually sell product as well. To wrap this up, I was not very good at creating an exit. I was never really comfortable with that. And it presented itself at one point in the fall of 2016. And of the three votes, I was the tiebreaker and actually said no. And I, I bit my lip. I didn't know if that was my, my one and only chance. And it resurfaced about 100 days later. And so it took about five months of negotiating. And we were able to sell the entire project, the land base, the livestock, the equipment, everything in one fell swoop for a profit. And by the fall, by September of 2017, I was truly done on my investment with that project in Russia. In the meantime, through all those years, and then after that, I did continue, however, with exporting a considerable amount of live cattle that wouldn't have only been in Russia. That essentially stopped in 2014, but then that continued with the other former Soviet states of Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. So that's what brings us probably to this conversation where you want to go. Yeah, it's it's great background, and I could go on for hours just asking about uh, more details. But but yeah, I I, I want to tie it to what is on the uh, forefront of of a lot of folks' minds today with Russia, and instead of sending genetics to them and seeing if we can add to the revenue stream in the U.S., now we're trying to figure out how much it's going to cost us to keep well. There's so many different things. So I guess from a geographic standpoint, am I correct that the, and I'll say it wrong, Verona's, how did you say the region where you were? Voronezh. There you go. Voronezh is what, due east of Kiev, Ukraine? Yes. So the the region of Voronezh is also the city of Voronezh. And and it would be considered the center of the black soil region for Russia. However, understand that it is on the western border of Russia, and it borders Ukraine. And from the ranch headquarters, as the crow flies, the border to Ukraine would have been about an hour and a half away, maybe 80 miles. But if you were to drive actually to an actual port, it would have been about two hours. When we first established Stevenson Sputnik, uh, south of the major city of Voronezh, it was near a village called Shestakova. It was literally just on a goat trail of a two-lane highway. It was pathetic. But through our second and third year of growth, they came in and they built a major interstate, M4. M. Chetidia was the main highway from Moscow south, essentially, to Rostov, and then the the Sea of uh, Novorossiysk off the Black Sea. And so, interestingly, I don't want to divert this conversation too much right now, but in 2014, as they annexed Crimea, we were there. And, and we were in the middle of haying and uh, we were in the middle. We, we backed off all of our calving to more May, June. So we were AI in cows and implanting embryos. And I had American assistance. And, and that main highway, M. Chetidia, is exactly where the military caravan, all the tanks, the Humvees, the entire military caravan drove right through the, right through the ranch, 300 yards from the headquarters, the bunkhouse, the office. We sat there. We took pictures of it. The the fighter jets flying overhead in the in the helicopter parades. It was ever present, and it was so curious for us to know what was going on on the ground and seeing that and what was going to happen. And then conversely, being able to resource any Western news, American news. And hear that side of it as well. And really, there's so much about this story, which to discuss that that it's finding the middle ground in two countries, two medias, and 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 two sociological bases that are completely polarized by the media and by politics. Actually, yeah, so I didn't answer your question direct. How far from Kiev or Kiev, as they say in Russia? If you were to drive that, it would be. It would have been about a five to a, it would have been about a six hour drive to Kiev. Donetsk, more prevalent to us though, is the Donbass region, which the primary city of Donetsk, that is where a lot of those Russian backed rebellions have, it's, it's just 
it's it's been troublesome for many many years that that would have been about a three hour drive from us three to four hours not not that far away so take me back to 2014 you see this convoy come through obviously you know something's going on prior to that did any of the locals have any suspicion that russia would be trying to take that crimean region back oh they care Okay, so they knew it was coming. When they saw it, did they know what was going on? Oh yeah, yeah. There's and then, no how doubt. long did it take for you to get confirmation? And where did that come from? By then, you probably had a little better internet service, had some contact with Western media. How did you? How did you find out for sure what was up? So, in order to give background on this, I mean, this is this is my own personal experience. I mean, I'm not taking these statistics from any government officials from from what i experienced I, I would say it's a fairly simple breakdown that that about a third of the russians would consider them nationalists that they never viewed ukraine as a as a sovereign nation that that it was their little brother their little sister that it was an extension of the bigger russia and i can say this firsthand because my two russian partners were adamant absolutely adamant that that Ukraine was theirs. So adamant to the point that when the annexation began, my one partner flew there to help. And understand wow. he was 58 years old. This um, is Sergey? This, this is Sergey, yes. Yes. And he was that much of a nationalist. So the other third would be kind of middle ground. Well, yeah, that's the way that it was. And, you know, I probably need to back up and give you a little background for that understanding, but I'll do that in a little bit. About a third of the people were like, well, that's the way that it was 30 years ago, 100 years ago, 400 years ago, but that's not the way it is today. And then there's about a third that are a little more Western influence, a little more open-minded and understand that they want to be a little more progressive and don't have out of sight, out of mind, don't care. And so it's it's a pretty equal split. However, understand that poli- politics and, and the ruling government trumps all. And and in 2014, you 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 asked specifically about that year. That year is what prompted everything that is going on here today. This is my opinion, my opinion only. But there was two, three, four different things that actually happened in 2014. The first, actually, um, uh, big picture word on the street is that oil is essentially got to be about $90 a barrel in Russia for their federal budget to actually operate. And, and I mean, for everybody's lives, in terms of government and day-to-day to actually be successful. Well... It was about $90 in, in, I mean, 10 years prior to that, but it did continue on a decline every year. And there was a meeting, I believe it was March or April of 2014, where I, I believe it was OPEC actually, that Russia was making the request that production worldwide would actually, they, they were hoping that people would slow down. They'd squeeze the taps down a little bit, slow down production, push back up oil prices. And I will say that politically, this is one point that Saudi Arabia, we, the, the Americans didn't say anything, but the Saudis came back and said, no, not at all. In fact, they did the reverse. And a lot of other people did. And this was seriously pressuring Russia's economy. And it, it, it upset them quite, quite a bit, actually. And so oil continued to drop. At that point, it was probably $55, $50 a barrel. And through that year, it ended up it, it, it just, it was a downward spiral. There's a couple other things that, that stimulated this though. Um, in June, mid June. So only 40 to 50 days after the, the getting shut down on the prospective oil ideas, Malaysian air flight, I believe 17 was shot down over Ukraine. Eastern Ukraine, and it was discovered that it was a missile that was from Russian-backed rebellions and it, it re, re, rebels, and it it killed everybody on that flight. And that is where the West started to actually step up. And it wasn't NATO direct, but it was the EU. And then slowly, 
the United States back to the preliminary beginnings of some sanctions that were coming in. Through the rest of the summer, if you recall this correctly, this was the heat of the, the battle that was going on in Syria. And, and this is what prompted Putin as much as anything, is that our administration and our leadership drew a, land, a line in the sand and said, you can't step over this no more. And Putin put his toe right over it. We drew another line in the sand and he did the same thing. It happened about three times. We had pushed back from minor sanctions. Number one, because of the downed air flight. Number two, because, because of they weren't playing nice in Syria. But this was, this was the telltale, telltale sign to the leadership in Red Square on how far they could go. And essentially, what was a red light, that proved to be a yellow light. And it was game on for Crimea. They stepped they, on the gas. And they, and they wanted Crimea. And it was taken overnight with essentially without a shot fired. They have their own reasoning. And I mean, it's spun one way in the United States and, and, and I'm not absolutely defending their mindset or their leadership, but they believe it's theirs. And I guess I, this is where I'll step back in time a little bit. And, and you've got to understand that their mindset is, is not the same as ours. Their mindset is, has been created over a millennium of, of culture and, and the ethnic class, clashes that come along with that and the leadership that has actually had to be strong-armed, powerful enough to bring them all together. The beginning debate, in my opinion, I've never really heard this elsewhere, but I think you've got to dig back in history literally 1,200 years to the 10th century, the 9th century, actually, when it starts, that the, the first king to be able to put the ethnic Slavic people together was essentially an invited Viking king. I think his name was Prince Oleg. And he came down, floated the river. I think he went through the region of Smolensk. And then he actually ended up landing in Kiev. And that is exactly where the birthplace of Russia or the Rus people, or more importantly, the Slavic people began. So you have two things going on here. The second thing, the first that I just mentioned, the birthplace of the Slavic ethnicity started in Kiev. Secondly, the birthplace of the Russian Orthodox Church started in Kiev. So you got two instances that their entire nationalism or ethnical base of which in all generality, Russia is based off that ethnicity is actually based in Ukraine, in Kiev. And so it's, they call it the motherland or the little sister. You tell me the difference in that. You, you don't know. So it's, it's constant that, that, you know, it's, they don't own their actual homeland. So it's a constant jab. It's a constant stab that the, the birthplace of, of who they are today is actually not within their borders. Well, fast forward, fast forward clear to the Soviet period. The Soviet period was, you know, essentially started in the early 20s. The Bolshevik Revolution, you know all about how that actually happened. And at the fall of the Soviet Union, I got to get my years straight. 1917. 1917. At a girl, Sarah. Oh, thank you. 1917 was the Decemberist. In 1993 was the perestroika. It was uh, 1991, actually, when Yeltsin was president, I believe. And so what happened is Yeltsin actually, Yeltsin actually declared that Ukraine was once again a sovereign nation, independent from the Soviet Union. This was not formalized. There was a great debate. There was strong hatred, actually, between Yeltsin and Gorbachev. And what happened is the originators of the Soviet period, I, I got it, I'm making sure I got this all straight in my mind. The originators of the Soviet Union were Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. And they joined forces to, to put together the Soviet Union in the early 20s, like 1922. And they felt that they had the power between them and their current leadership to actually bring that, to, to, to actually tear it apart. 
And so in December of 1991, there was a formal agreement that was actually signed by the president of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine to create what is now known today as the common the Commonwealth of Independent States, a CIS. And then within about two weeks, the other 14 or 15 Soviet states fell. And that literally at the beginning of 1992 was the fall of the Soviet. That's the beginning of perestroika that actually Sarah just mentioned, where we in the West would realize that's where they went from a communistic controlled economy to a free market. It was the Wild West. It was chaos. And that's another pivotal point to this whole conversation that we're talking about. 2014, I use that as an example for current existing situation, but it's as much stimulated by what happened in December of 1991 because there are loyalists, there are nationalists that, that, that Putin and, and the primary leaders in the Kremlin are residual from that period of time. And so Putin who has now been in power for 22 years, I believe. He's been sitting patiently for many, many years to, re to reunite this dream. So on to best explaining why this is critical to the heart and soul of Russia. It is... It, it is said, but it's not emphasized. Most Americans or most people that are watching the news would actually think that it's for the seaport access. They would think it's for the natural resources, either the mineral or the agriculture. Does that have a part to do with it? Absolutely. I mean, that's just kind of a bonus. But it, the, the, the very raw realism on this is is he believes, Putin in his mind believes that he's an actual liberator. He actually believes that he's bringing all the Rus people, the Slavic ethnicity, back under one umbrella. You could actually see this if you follow it close enough that the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine has essentially voted themselves out. They wanted to secede. They have been fighting Ukraine themselves. There is, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of this, a lot of people might not truly understand that a large majority of Ukraine is actually Russian descended. They're Russian. They're, it's a huge population of Russian speaking. It's a huge population of Russian people. And, and so Putin himself actually thinks that he is saving these people uh, be, because they, it's, it, I mean, from an American perspective, it seems ridiculous, but from their perspective, they, they 100% actually believe that they have been downtrodden in society, not given a fair shot, that they're biased tremendously against, and it is their dutiful right to actually go back in and actually protect those folks. And that's why Kiev is so important to collapse that cattle, capital so that they can actually take control yet once again. Now, so Daryl, do you know of or are there Russian descendants in Ukraine currently who are supportive of Putin's moves? Uh, we don't hear much about that, but are they there? I personally don't know of anybody, but the answer is absolutely yes. They're not nearly as much of a majority as what Putin would represent or the state media would represent to the rest of Russia. And that's not represented at all to the to the Western world at all. That entire Donbass region that I keep referencing with Donetsk, it is 80 percent supportive of Russia. There's there's no question. And if you di divide the country in two, the eastern portion of Ukraine is is highly supportive um, in pockets. But however, through this through through this invasion, I'll use that as the terminology. I mean, they they've laid down their arms. They haven't stepped up to to help the military of Russia. Putin actually expected that. I actually think that once they came in, that they would rise up in arms and help support the cause and the fight. Uh, that really wasn't the case. I mean, they they are nationalistic, or in. Uh, in the Russian cause, but not brave enough to actually do it. Because 
I think they're also smart enough to realize that they're completely in the wrong and, and probably not support it. And then, then a lot of them, there was a mass exodus within the first four to six weeks that a lot of them just up and left and they headed east and they, they went back to Russia. So this brings us, I mean, this, this is precarious. It's, it's concerning. And I mean, it's scary to a lot of people. I don't want to sound way too comfortable and say that I don't think about it, but uh, the fear of nuclear warfare and, and the, the use of that strong of an effort, I would be shocked my, myself. I, I just, it, Russia is, is a nation and a group of leaders that crave respect and and they do not and there's there's different points in recent history and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole and and point each of them out but they feel disrespected they feel unheard and so their bullying pulpit their idea of brute force tactic is is not uncommon it's historically proven to be that they want to be i heard i heard somebody say that Putin has been playing chess for 20 years and now he's finally playing poker. And I thought that was really interesting in that analogy that, that he's been very predicated, pretty predictable, but now he's calling a bluff for a lot of people. In my own personal opinion, he's going the wrong direction. He's getting backed into a corner. This is, it's, it's not a comfortable place for him or the bordering nations, but it is actually really proven to strengthen the entire EU, it's it's strengthened NATO. But in referencing what I talked about in the year 2014, you also have to understand that it has reluctantly happened. I mean, the United States, as everybody would realize, is a huge part to NATO, but NATO is only as strong as we are. So they're very passive about their how they want to defend themselves or how hard they want to draw lines. And they don't want to make movement with without our leadership. They they're not nearly as strong when we support their cause as much as when we lead their cause. And so I'm keeping names out of it. I'm trying to keep politics out of it, but it does come from the weakness that we have actually proven. And through the exit, the debacle of an exit that we actually had in Af- Afghanistan, that was the final green light. That that absolutely in my opinion is is was the deciding factor that we're going to actually step foot in and we're going to take this because the the west is not making strong enough decisions at this point and this is concerning for me as you know and i've mentioned before i've got a son as a a candidate special operations in the army. And I, I, I mean, this personally affects me every day on, on where he's at and where he's going to be commissioned or based out of. It, it affects me economically as well. Prior to the invasion, I was actually assisting with exporting logistically meat product to China from Russia. It, ex, it, it affects me personally. I am constantly communicating with friends and associates from Russia and ironically, depending on the individual, you would be surprised on how little this has actually affected the common citizen. I mean, in my opinion, like a lot of people, we think this is a severe stranglehold that's that's actually going to just continually diminish economically where Russia actually sits today. But I mean, I'll, I'll quote that this has not affected me at all. We've seen Store prices maybe increased 10 to 30%. We've dropped some chain stores, but other than that, life goes on. And this is from a person that actually sees both sides of it, that accesses accesses international news as well. And, and their comment is, what can we do about it? We can't protest. We can't write a letter to the editor. It's a lot of little opinions against one big brute force. And, and it's... It's concerning that the people of Russia and the former concept of a democracy actually is not working by the way that we actually perceive it. So let me ask you this without asking if we should be, and and as we're recording this, Congress is still dealing with 
how much and if we should be pushing money toward the Ukraine, the country Ukraine to support them. Does $40 billion or whatever the price tag, any any denomination of, of money, does it help hurt? Oh, it, there's there's no question that it helps. We're okay. we're we're coming late to the party. It's, this this should yeah. have been this should have happened two weeks into it. I'm not saying that dollar level. I think that dollar amount can be used for a lot of things here at home. But I I think this is a lot of missteps. I I I I don't think that this was handled properly from the very beginning, or from the previous actions that actually allowed them to actually get to this point. I, I personally have a friend that he has been in the Ukraine. This is his third trip now, and he's a freedom fighter. And he just he he just got out about three days ago from this last trip, and and he is on a, a more humanitarian. He took he got an ambulance in. He took some human meds. He took some dog food to help all of the stray pets. And he's, he's, this is his third trip in to Kiev and it's absolute chaos. And so his first and first person reporting is that they are holding ground. Every time that he travels, he's got one, two or three special forces with him for protection. And he doesn't go anywhere without body armor. He is former military, but does the money help? Yeah. I mean, if, if Ukraine falls, this affects the entire NATO alliance, the economy of sure. the EU, and in it, it circles clear back here to the United States. And this comes down to everybody's individual vote in this country. And and where, where it's got us back to a corner is these fuel prices. As I started this conversation to begin with, where Russia needs to be for fuel prices to be productively at their federal level at $90 a barrel, don't kid yourself. This is a good thing for them. And, and it's, it's just, it's terribly, it's disheartening and terribly complicated on a common American right now for the cost of living. That was the result of a yet another bad decision. So you didn't have an exit strategy for Stevenson Sputnik. I got there um, though. You did, I understand. But what would your exit strategy be here? If, let's say you're Putin, knowing what you've told us that you think are his real desires to take back Kiev or Kiev or however, depending on the region you want to pronounce it. It's, um, it's Kiev into in, in Ukrainian language and it's Kiev in the Russian language. And see, I remember it being Kiev when we were yep. back in the 90s in the Cold War and, and it was always part of world geography. But yep. I know what he wants. He's surely figuring out by now that he's not going to get where he thought he might. What's he thinking? Is he is he sitting okay oh, no. with the he's, increase in oil price and everything else, or is he is he wanting out? No, he's not. He's it's it's not okay. And and the resolve on this is it it does come down to negotiation, and it it's going to end up coming down to salesmanship. He can't quit this until he can prove a win. What that win is is going to be spun differently than the way that you and I would think. It would be. Probably the annexation of the Donbass region, maybe a bridge or a connection on a land basis to Crimea. He's not going to get Kiev, I don't believe, because of not only the Ukrainian forces, but the international support. And that's got to be spun that, well, we got what we wanted. We'll let them have that back as long as politically we handle these accords. That's going to come down to negotiation. It's going to be spun as his decision. We, we, we need the best that we have in in these negotiations. We can't and won't be a part of it at all. But in terms of winning in the big picture, I do not believe he can take the whole country. I think he's an absolute fool if he actually thinks that he can step toe into a NATO country because then the whole world is coming down on him. And when I say that it's got to be something that he can spin with positivity, and winning back to his public, the state-controlled media can and will do that, and 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 that will be, that will go down in their history books as a win for them. He has been state. I mean, on on uh, the big celebration that they just had, Victory Day was just two weeks ago. He stood there on a podium and said, "We will win, just like 1945." 
Well, the way wow. that we won in 1945 is a lot different than what he's thinking he can spin this to actually be. And then he's prefacing got a, he's that. He's got a different teammates. There are no teammates. That, the, the, the overall patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church about a week before that actually stood in congregation and, and swore that Russia has never started a war. So there's pretenses wow. here that are actually getting sold to the pub public that are just ridiculous. And I, I, it might not sound to you like I'm giving a good enough answer. The further and further they get beat down on this, I'm not going to say it's going to turn into a, a multi-year, multiple decade situation like Afghanistan. But economically, with the sanctions that are in place, it's, it has secluded them. It has isolated them to a point that is going to be incredibly crippling under the continuation of his presidency. And, and don't, don't underestimate this man. Some people call him crazy, that he's lost his mind. I do not believe that. I believe he's incredibly predicated. He's incredibly brilliant. Uh, his support people probably not so much in their follow through but he will he will angle on this thing and i do believe it's critically important for the freedoms that we know today not only in our homeland but throughout our allies homelands that that we draw a line today and we mean it yeah i i think that you'd find a lot of agreement in a lot of different regions both within where the fighting is going but especially over this way. So this next part, and I want to spend just a few minutes, and I know I've taken an hour already, but this is the part that probably seems like a sidebar to a lot of folks watching the nightly news, but for our listeners is probably as critical to their day-to-day goings-on and yours and mine as well. So the everything we've talked about for the last half hour is what's on everybody's minds as they watch the evening news. And that is what's going to happen in Ukraine. What's Russia going to do next? The folks that are listening to this podcast are worried about that, but they're also worried about eight and nine and $10 corn and 16 and 18 and $20 beans and whatever else we may see because of this conflict coupled with everything other everything going on with the economy. What would your estimate be from talking with people over there as far as actual production affected in terms of commodity crops in Ukraine, in Western Russia? How much is this going to shake things up come harvest next fall? I, <laughs> I chuckle because I thought, you don't want this to be a very feel-good story, do you? Well, hey, we call it practically ranching, and the practical part of farming and ranching has to be truth, and we're not, we're not wanting to spin anything. If it's bad news, let's just get it over with, and let's plan accordingly. Well, I, don't, I really don't want to be a doomsdayer, and I, I do not conduct my own life in a negative manner, but I do believe from a reality perspective that everything that you just mentioned is for real, that, first of all, wheat is in my area actually is is going to be tremendously affected corn and then sunflower which is going to be less affecting in my area but those three crops are going to see spikes in values that i do not believe actually to come off of that if there's a point to make out of this whole discussion it's for your folks the listeners to understand how small this actual world is that these minor movements, whether it's whether it's a fire season in late August in Voronezh or whether it's it's too much moisture to get these crops in the ground, and in this case, it is actually wartime where they're not able to get these crops seeded. And I'll be honest with you, there's more affecting this than just the, the, the war in Ukraine itself. They're pulling a lot of, of people into their military that have no business being in the military they're, they're not depleting a workforce in Russia, but it's actually affecting it. I had actually never heard that before. So on both sides of the border in Russia and Ukraine, this, this truly is going to be affected from the production standpoint, getting into, in, into the ground and then harvested. But then secondarily to that, 
and equally as important is the ability to actually store it and then ship it logistically on inland or by sea. And then you've got sanctions. Now, granted, food is not on the sanctions list, but you're going to have all those restrictions complicating the whole process because food might not be restricted. You could actually ship it, but tell me a shipping container company in the world that is going to be willing to participate with Russia. Exactly. So there's there's more there's more issues of concern than what a normal farmer or rancher could actually consider. They might come, let's say they came in and, and, and actually farmed a bumper crop for all three, for, for sunflower, corn, and wheat. The biggest complication is the ability to actually transport it. Yep. And I know this firsthand from what I previously mentioned on shipping beef product to China, that it was kind of a go, it slowed down, it was tightening, and then it literally just got to the point that it's done. No, can't do it. And, and that, that is what is going to ultimately trigger this as much as anything and, and, and push and push this as far and as hard as it's, it's going to be complicated for us. And then on top of that, secondarily is, is fuel costs. And that, that's under, under our leadership's current policies, and now with this crisis at hand, that, that is a dynamic that we're not going to see relax in the near future, not through this foreseeable harvest season. So it's going to hit from, from a couple of different angles. And then obviously on the feeder calf or the feedlot side as well, cost of feed to put into these animals is is going to be at levels that we can't make this deal work and then that will further pressure uh, national cow herd inventory and ongoing drought doesn't help that either so we're being pushed it from a lot of angles right now that i'm telling you folks have just gonna have to they're gonna have to buckle up because what's on the other side of this is astronomical it could be fireworks you just you gotta buckle down you gotta make it around the next corner and it will be there all economic dynamics are on our side but what is going on literally 10 time zones away is is affecting every one of our day-to-day operations it doesn't matter whether you're in kansas or montana yeah there's uh the interconnectivity between all of us whether we like it or not whether we were for it or not it is a global marketplace and yeah it's all intertwined and the snowball effect takes over pretty quickly. So well, it does. I wish, I mean, I really wish that I had a more positive outlook to actually share, but in being realistic, that's what I'm preparing for. Yep. Yep. Well, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. Like I said, we could go on for hours and I would guess that most of these listeners could listen for hours. But uh, as you said, we've got to go and figure out how we get the daily tasks done and squeeze in some time for planning what's ahead of us. And, and that seems to be taking more and more time out of our schedules each day. So Daryl Stevenson, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And we look forward to visiting in the future and give our best to the family. And we'll be chatting again soon. I, I, I certainly will. Really enjoyed it, Matt. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. You bet. Thanks for joining us for Practically Ranching, brought to you by Dale Banks Angus. We hope we made you think or chuckle or even yell a little. If you enjoyed the podcast, heck, even if you didn't, help us improve by leaving a comment with your review wherever you heard us. And if you want to listen again, click subscribe and catch us next week. God bless, and we look forward to visiting again soon. Mm -hmm.